This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Loneliness by Bruno Schultz, translated from the Polish by Celina Wieniewska, which was published in The New Yorker in November of 1977. It is you, I want to exclaim. You have always been my faithful reflection. You have accompanied me for so many years, and now you don't recognize me. The story was chosen by Alejandro Zambra, a Chilean poet, novelist, and story writer, whose most recent novel, Chilean Poet, will be published in English this month. Hi, Alejandro. Hi, Deborah. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. So you chose Bruno Schultz as the writer you most wanted to read quite quickly. Can you tell me how you first discovered his work? Oh, yes, it was a long time ago. I think it was 1998. I was 23 or something. And I was in this second-hand bookstore in downtown Santiago and came across a sanatorium under the sign of the hourglass. And I remember I had heard of Bruno Schulz. I mean, I, I had heard him referenced as a great writer. But to be honest, the, the reason I picked up book up was the beautiful sound of the Spanish word on the title, clepsidra. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the word also exists in English, but um, it was translated uh, using the word hourglass, you know. But Clipsidra mm-hmm. sounded uh, so beautiful, and, and that's the reason I <laughs> picked up the book. <laughs> I think I had a look at John Updike's uh, foreword that that Spanish translation included, and I read that story, Standing Up. I think uh, I chose it because it was the shortest. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it, and I, I'm not sure I, I loved it immediately. It was... Uh, more like true love, <laughs> the love that also <laughs> deals with uh, this um, perplexity. By then, I, I was more a, a reader of poetry, and I was into classics. I was a big fan of Kafka. I still love Kafka. And this was uh, different, although he is always compared to Kafka. This was different. It was, uh, in a way, darker. And and Bruno Schulz has this weird sense of humor or this uh, tenderness. And at the same time, his writing is very complex. It was something totally unique. And that is still what I feel when I read him. It's a really unique writer. At the time when you were reading that book, did you know the story of his life? I mean, I'm not sure. I think I I didn't. I I had the Mm -hmm. idea of what a great writer he was, but I didn't know about his painful death and very little. I think I, I knew very little about him. Later I read him, like, Ten years later, I I read this beautiful edition of all his work, in Spanish edition, Mm -hmm. and I loved him, or (laughs) re-love. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the tragedy of his life for us is that he only had time to write and publish two books before he was uh, 
killed by the Gestapo um, in 1942. And the story you're reading today, Loneliness, was first published in English in The New Yorker in 1977, but of course, you know, it was written long before that and included in in that second story collection, the one that you picked up, Sanatorium Under the Sign of the Hourglass, in 1937, which is five years before he died. Do you feel that the story uh, has aged well? Do you feel that it's specific to the time in which he was writing? I mean, I wouldn't say this is his best story, but it's the one I love the most, you know? Maybe because of that first encounter. And also, I have to say that I chose it now because, well, because of a number of reasons, but uh, it is a story about uh, confinement. So I I came across this story again, I think like uh, two months into pandemic. And I've been thinking about this story a lot now. I mean... It's it's really a dark story, I think. So it works for me more like poetry, in a way. Mm-hmm. It's the density of it. It's a story about, perhaps about, someone who's, who's <laughs> locked in a room, but it could be about so many other things. <laughs> uh, maybe we should just listen to it now. So now, here's Alejandro Zambra, reading Loneliness by Bruno Schultz. Translated from the Polish by Celina Wieniewska. Loneliness. It is with great relief that I feel able to go out again. But for what a long time was I confined to my room. These have been bitter months and years. I cannot explain why I have been living in my old nursery, the back room of the apartment with access from the balcony which was rarely used in the past, forgotten, as if it did not belong to us. I cannot remember how I got here. I believe it was during a bright, watery white, moonless night. I could see every detail in the dim light. The bed was unmade, as if someone had just left it, and I listened in the stillness for the breathing of people asleep. But who was likely to be breathing here? Since then, this has been my home. I have been here for years and I am rather bold. Why didn't I think in advance about stocking up? Ah, you who still can do it, who still are given the time, make provisions, save up grain, good nourishing, sweet grain. For a great winter of lean and hungry years lies ahead, and the earth will not bear fruit in the land of Egypt. Alas, I was not provident, like a hamster. I have always been a light-hearted field mouse. I have lived from day to day without a care for the morrow, trusting in my starling's talent. Like a mouse, I thought, what do I care about hunger? If worst comes to worst, I can know wood or nibble paper. The poorest of animals, a great church mouse at the tail end of the book of creation, I can exist on nothing. And so I live in this dead room. Many flies died in it a long time ago. 
I put my ear against wood to hear the sound of a woodworm. Deadly silence. Only I, the immortal mouse, lonely and posthumous, rustle in this room, running endlessly on the table, on the shelf, on the chairs. I run around, resembling Aunt Tecla in a long grey frock reaching to the ground, agile, quick and small, pulling behind me a mobile tail. I am now sitting in bright daylight on the table, immobile, as if stuffed, my eyes like two protruding shiny beads. Only the end of my muscle pulsates imperceptibly, by force of habit, in minute chewing movements. This, of course, is to be understood as a metaphor. I am really an old-age pensioner, not a mouse. It is part of my existence to be the parasite of metaphors. So easily am I carried away by the first simile that comes along. Having been carried away, I have to find my difficult way back and slowly return to my senses. What do I look like? Sometimes I see myself in the mirror, a strange, ridiculous and painful thing. I am ashamed to admit it. I never look at myself full face. Somewhat deeper, somewhat farther away, I stand inside the mirror a little off-center, slightly in profile, thoughtful and glancing sideways. Our looks have stopped meeting. When I move, my reflection moves, too, but have turned away, as if it did not know about me, as if it had got behind a number of mirrors and could not come back. My heart bleeds when I sit so distant and indifferent. It is you, I want to exclaim. You have always been my faithful reflection. You have accompanied me for so many years, and now you don't recognize me. Oh, my God. Unfamiliar and looking to one side, my reflection stands there and seems to be listening for something, awaiting a word from the mirror depths obedient to someone else, waiting for orders from another place. Mostly I sit at the table and turn the pages of my yellowed university notes, my only reading. I look at the sun-bleached curtain, stiff with dust, waving slightly in the cold breeze from the window. I could do exercises on the curtain rod, an excellent bar how lightly one could turn somersaults on it in the sterile, tired air. Almost casually, one could make an elegant salto mortale, coolly, without too much involvement, a speculative exercise, as it were. When one stands on tiptoe, balancing oneself on the bar, with one's head touching the ceiling, one has the impression that it is slightly warmer higher up, the illusion of being in a warmer zone. Ever since my childhood, I have liked to have a bird's-eye view of my room. So I sit and listen to the silence. The room is whitewashed. Sometimes on the white ceiling a wrinkle-like crack appears. Sometimes a flake of plaster breaks off with a click. Am I to reveal that the room is walled in? How can that be? Walled in? 
how could I leave it? That is just it. Where there is a will, there is a way. A passionate determination can conquer all. I must only imagine a door, a good old door, like the one in the kitchen of my childhood, with an iron handle and a bolt. There is no walled in room that could not be opened by such a trusted door, provided one were strong enough to suggest that such a door exists. That was Alejandro Zambra reading Loneliness by Bruno Schultz, translated from the Polish by Celina Wieniewska. The story appeared in The New Yorker in November of 1977 and was included in the collection Sanatorium Under the Sign of the Hourglass, which was published in Polish in 1937 and first published in English in 1978. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Alejandro... First of all, what do you think is the overall setup of this story? We have an old man who's maybe a mouse, who's maybe locked in a room, who's maybe walled into the nursery of his childhood. What do you think is going on on a literal level? And are there many, many possible metaphorical levels? I think he's a man thinking about childhood and dealing with it and and trying to go beyond the present and trying to to show himself and discovering that he doesn't know who he is. And obviously, this is something you always do when you think about childhood, trying to get a different sense of time and remembering what you don't really remember. I think all this... Um, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I cannot explain. Uh, The short story is full of that. And I think that's a way of being, in a way, honest. Even this transformation, this false transformation, it is a a way of, of being faithful. You mean the transformation from mouse to man, or? Yeah, mouse to pensioner. (laughs) <laughs> and you know the big contradiction between the opening lines and, and the ending it is with great relief that I feel able to go out again but uh, when you finish reading the story you, you realize that he's not able to go out again so it's something uh, that I think uh, we as readers don't understand 
and he he doesn't understand either you know <laughs> but uh, it's about a feeling and an atmosphere yeah i mean it's interesting at the end he does say he's walled in he can't get out but he offers a way out which is by imagining a door by by writing this story i think in a way yeah the story is his door i suppose but it takes strength to suggest that there's a door yes <laughs> to suggest <laughs> I mean, in a way, part of the story must be about writing. We we read the first section, and we have all of these images of him as a mouse and so on, or him as his aunt in a long gray dress. And then he suddenly says, well, of course, this is all a metaphor. <laughs> it's a very writerly moment, but he doesn't say what it's a metaphor for. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that part. <laughs> but uh, it is obviously like showing the trick, but... Uh, you're showing the trick and still there is a trick. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but uh, when when you write, you have the feeling that you are transforming yourself all the time. And at the same time, you feel like you are searching for something. I, I like that way of conceiving writing as a searching the whole time. Sometimes you get to something you, you can show to people and you publish it. But uh, I think the most uh, beautiful thing about writing is that you don't really know where you're going. And I think every person who writes experiences that in some way, you know. Yeah, and he says that he's a parasite of metaphors. Yeah. And he gets carried away by them. You know, he's not in control. They carry him, and he has to fight to come back to his senses. I connect that uh, sentence with, I think, uh, the sentence I I love the most the first time I, I read the story when he says, like, ever since my childhood, I have liked to have a bird's eye view of my room. I love that sentence so much. What makes you love it? Well, it's like something, uh, when you read it, you feel like... Uh, you share that, you know, it's like, a, I don't know, when someone says something, you recognize as truth in a way, you know. Uh, I don't know how to say it, but uh, it happens to me when I read Bruno Schulz that I find many images. I think, yes, yes, <laughs> I felt <laughs> that way, you know. I, I, I've always liked to have a bird's eye of my room, too, you know? <laughs> it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the writer's position, right? Looking mm-hmm. down from above as the action unfolds and being able to see everything. Yes, yes. And at the same time, it's kind of childish, you know? It's what uh, amazes me is that... Um, I think Bruno Schultz is always trying to go beyond the present and he manages to relate to the sacred, to myth, to something bigger than us. And at the same time, uh, there is uh, this painful feeling the whole time, you know. I feel as though in that first section... We're set up to believe that the speaker is dead, right? We have him in a dead room. He refers to himself as immortal and posthumous. Yes. Do you get the sense that he's sort of a ghost who's stuck in his childhood nursery? 
Yeah, I mean, a friend of mine told me, this guy is dead, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> this guy is dead. And I, I think it, it is more complex than that. He is mm-hmm. uh, stuck in childhood. And, well, I know you know that many stories of Bruno Schulz are related to the father. And here the father is not around. But uh, he's confined in, in the nursery. And he's dealing with childhood as dead and, and becoming to live. I don't know how to say it, sorry. But it's like a... Coming alive again. Coming alive and, 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 and dying at the same time. And it's uh, really hard to describe Bruno Schulz's work. Maybe he is dead and, and maybe writing is something beautiful and maybe writing is something terrible and you are stuck uh, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so perhaps this is about trying to write about your childhood, trying to go back to your childhood nursery and write about it, and instead just not being able to catch sight of yourself there, not being able to rediscover what it was that you want to write about. You have that bird's eye view, but there's nothing but dead flies. Yeah. Many flies died a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, I love that that reading. I mean, somehow I feel something similar with Schultz as with my son, you know, because I have a four-year-old and he breathes new life into language every day and, and maybe I'm not entirely sure of the meaning, but I can be surprised and delighted with experience the whole day, you know. So there, there's something related to... Um, relearning how to talk to, I think, or discovering communication. And in a way, uh, I think that's why I, I was amazed for this story lately. I mean, I was in this moment where we all are like dealing with language, like for the first time, I think, the sensation that words are infected. I don't know, I remember these days in the beginning of the pandemic where you feel like a language was dead or was like a very alive but, <laughs> but was laughing at us, you know. And I remember those days where you, I tried to avoid words related to time and space, you know, yeah, which are a right. lot. <laughs> So so I, I was like uh, distrusting and at the same time my kid was there discovering language and, and it was so beautiful. I mean that he was like uh, making language shine and the world was darkening it up at the same time. He was, uh, you know that moment where kids have a a few words, mm-hmm. but they use them and they combine them in, in many ways. So it's so <laughs> playful and funny. And at the same time, those words were laughing at us, you know, and, and those were the days I remembered this short story. And this story is full of, as you say, tenderness, but also contradiction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Even from the very beginning, you know, he thinks he found himself in this room on a bright, watery white, moonless night. Well, 
how can the night be bright if it's moonless, <laughs> you know? I mean, just each image seems to have a contradiction within it. Yeah. Um, and uh, perhaps that's playful. I mean, when you reread Jules, you don't have the sense that you already know what he's going to talk about. Each sentence has something weird and as you just said you know uh, that's like a mistake you know that's <laughs> like a teacher mm -hmm. would say like mm -hmm. uh, this is a contradiction you you have to fix at the same time there is something about translated literature i've been trying to think about i mean about reading and loving writers that wrote in languages you don't know a word you know like polish uh, to me or I don't know, German, and when you speak Spanish, you, you have a sense of uh, three or four languages. Even if you don't know them, you can hear Portuguese and Italian, French. But with Polish, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know a word of it. And yeah. at the same time, you deal with different, uh, with, with, I think there are like four or five translations of Bruno Schulz's work into Spanish. So... You never have the original there, you know? And there is something really beautiful about that. The Spanish translations are, are really different one, one, one another. Do you have a favorite? No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I like the flowing of, <laughs> of <laughs> not really getting, and at the same time, I like that in general. I mean, in English, too. I mean... I started reading Emily Dickinson's poetry when I didn't know a word of English, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> we got this uh, bilingual editions of, of her poetry, and, and we didn't like the Spanish versions. So we, we started to correct them, <laughs> and making it more Chilean, you know. So in a way, I, I enjoy that a lot. And, and it happens a lot with classics because you can find like four or five. I think I, think I found like 10 versions of, of a poem by Emily Dickinson in Spanish. So you can play the same way you, you would decide about music covers, you know, about what's mm -hmm. the best version of it. But you don't have the original mm -hmm. there. And I don't know. I don't have a theory, but uh, it is different when you when you know you don't know the language. Mm -hmm. There was some uh, controversy about this translator, Selina Vinyevska, her choices when translating Schultz because she, I believe, acknowledged that she made some changes to make Schultz's writing more palatable for Anglophone readers. And the, the stories were all recently retranslated by another translator, Madeline G. Levine. So I'm wondering if this translation that you just read feels substantially different from the Spanish versions you've read. Yes, it feels, but uh, I have like three or four versions of the Spanish version <laughs> in my head. So, <laughs> I mean, I love translation. The problems related to translation are so interesting and so beautiful. I think you can always be comparing translations and choosing, but that's a way of reading. So I, I think all translators make mistakes and... At the same time, uh, I can imagine how 
hard it would be to translate Bruno Schulz. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say that I read the Selina, the Selina version in English, and I also read the Madeleine Levin, and I enjoyed them <laughs> <laughs> a lot, both of them, because I, I'm not looking for, for the final word, you know? Right. Well, I suppose if you read all these different versions, then you find the, the original somewhere in between or in a combination of them all. Yeah, and as a reader, you are always like... Um, deciding not exactly which version you prefer but uh, you're deciding what short story you read you know and mm-hmm. and i think uh, this way you can get to a multiple uh, version of one story right and as we've already discussed this story has multiple meanings yes yes <laughs> multiple yes, yes, possible yes. readings yeah. I mean, it's interesting because we've talked about seeing it as a, a metaphor for death or a metaphor for being a writer and a metaphor for a return to childhood. But the title of the story is Loneliness. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which is none of those three things. Is this also a portrait of loneliness? Yes, I think it is about loneliness. But it makes it hard to just uh, stay in with the word loneliness, you know, because of everything we've been talking about. Well, perhaps being a writer is a lonely thing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel that, but uh, it's a romantic way of putting it. And at the same time, I I always like this um, loneliness company situation. You write alone, you read alone, but you you share that. This is the only thing I, I could advise to, to other writers, like share that, share your writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you write uh, in your room and maybe you feel that the world is against you. And when you write, maybe you, you think so, but then you share it with a friend and, and you start talking about it. And nowadays, being alone is something people don't like at all. People are always against loneliness, against solitude. So when you read, you are alone. And I think many people don't like reading because of that, because they (laughs) are alone. And and, and what is this about? I mean, I'm in front of of a book and I'm doing nothing. But but then you, you realize when kids like reading is they can... They deal with uh, being alone, and, and that's so beautiful. They can deal with it. I mean, they they don't feel it as a problem. You know, they they don't feel that uh, being alone is something bad. You know, when you read, you're not really alone. You're with all those characters. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, this is something uh, uh, people learn when they read that they are not alone. Mm-hmm and that they are enjoying this weird situation <laughs> of reading. <laughs> people, people coming out of the book to be with them. Except for this poor pensioner yeah. alone in his room. He's only got his reflection, and his reflection won't look at him. Everything else is dead. But maybe he finds a way out, and his way out is through writing. It is through inventing a door, Yes, suggesting yes. there's a door. Yes, I really like that ending. Yeah. 
So for me, I, I think it ends on a positive note. Yeah, and that's uh, weird about the story. This unexpected light of hope, hard hope, uh, agonizing hope, but hope in the end. I mean, I think you could tweet these last sentences and you would get many likes. <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds <laughs> it sounds a little like self-help advice. Uh, um, but if you think about the whole story and how it finally lands with this sentence, you can feel its depth. It's the kind of ending I, I like the most. I mean, you feel like the writer had that end from the very beginning, but had to go through the whole story to make it unique, to make it shine in a way. Right. He, had, he, c he can't get out of the room unless he's first locked into the room. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a big contradiction. And it, it seems like the whole story was wishful thinking, you know, because uh, it starts with this uh, celebrating that I can go out again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You feel all the time that he's talking to himself. But there are moments where he speaks to the reader. I mean, in all Bruno Schultz's stories, uh, most of them, you feel like uh, there's a guy talking to himself and at the same time, he's always talking to the reader, you know? Yeah, he addresses us. He asks a lot of questions. Yeah, he's like yeah. an answer in an interview in a way, like, uh, how do I look like? How, <laughs> how do I look like? And it's really weird, I mean, uh, his first book, The Cinnamon Shops, uh, it seems it was uh, addressed to a friend as, as uh, letters. And maybe there is something related to that that stayed in his style. And if you were to explain why uh, loneliness is your favorite of his stories, what would that explanation be? Because I am a weird person, no, <laughs> who likes weird <laughs> short stories. I mean, the kind of literature I enjoy is really hard to specify, you know. I like, I don't know, very different kinds of literature. And this story is, to me, related to poetry or, or the way I, I read poetry, you know. There is something uh, about the rhythm, even though we are dealing with different translations that stayed with me and, and some images I, I never forgot, you know? So my explanation would be very stupid. I mean, this is like a song I've been listening to for two decades and I never feel that I know the song. I always feel like there is something strange there, even like a celebration of uh, strangeness that uh, I love so much. And he's been a writer I like, and at the same time, I think uh, he's like uh, talking to me, and mm -hmm. I don't really get him, but he's like uh, doing things I'm really enjoying. He's a writer that maybe you appreciate because you can't fully understand him. Yes, in that way is different than Kafka. I mean, I'm not saying I, I understand Kafka, but uh, 
I feel like uh, I know what he's talking about, what Kafka is talking about. And, and I love that. But in this case, there is something like twisted. I don't really get, but I, I would love to understand, you know. And, and I mean, that's a little like a definition of classic by Italo Calvino, I think, that there is something there that doesn't stop revealing itself. It's always recreating something you, you hardly recognize, but you do recognize. Well, thank you so much, Alejandro. Thank you, Deborah. Bruno Schultz was a teacher, artist, and writer, born in 1892 in Drohobycz, which was then in Polish Galicia. He put out two story collections in his lifetime, The Cinnamon Shops, which was published in the U.S. as The Street of Crocodiles, and Sanatorium Under the Sign of the Hourglass. Schultz's collected stories, translated from the Polish by Madeline G. Levine, came out in 2018. In 1942, while Schultz was living under Nazi occupation in the Drohobitz ghetto, he was shot in the street by a Gestapo officer. Alejandro Zambra is a Chilean poet and fiction writer whose books, translated into English by Megan McDowell, include The Private Lives of Trees, which was nominated for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award in 2012, Ways of Going Home, My Documents, and Multiple Choice. You can download more than 170 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.